The following program is paid for by Rudy Wealth Management. Good morning, and welcome to Paul Rudy's On the Money. You're invited to be part of today's show. Call 356-9397. Opinions and views expressed represent those of the guests and do not necessarily represent those of the station. And now, Paul Rudy's On the Money. Good Tuesday morning, everybody. I'm Paul Rudy with Paul Rudy's On the Money Radio Show. I'm here with my two regular guests. When are we going to pull your uh, brother-in-law, David, my son, David, in, Ryan? <laughs> I think I think we need to get him back. He brings a little flair to the show. Yeah, freshen it up a little. But I have Dr. Fred Gertz, who is always with us, which we're delighted. Dr. Fred, good to see you. Good to be here. And I have certified financial planner professional Ryan Repko, who works with me at Rudy Wealth Management. You can call in with your questions, 217-356-9397, or text us on the Castle Heating and Cooling text line at 351-5357. You can also email your questions to talk at WDWS. It's important to recognize that past performance is not an indication of future results, and you should not make any investment decisions without first consulting your own financial advisor and conducting your own research and due diligence. Oh, I did that one like a computer, didn't <laughs> I? <laughs> Sound like a uh, car commercial with <laughs> all the stipulations. Uh, good morning, guys. Hey, I went to a wedding a week ago in Chicago and a, a engagement party in downtown Chicago. Boy, it's booming, by the way. Right. So I'll probably get the Delta variant or something, Fred. <laughs> <laughs> talking to all those people. Well, you're double protected. You have. You, I, have, you had I, it plus. I, the, I'm not particularly worried. Plus yet. a shot. Yeah. So double vaccinated. Plus I had COVID. So. It doesn't keep me up at night, but everybody's talking about it. I was listening to Brian's show. It's a big, still a big topic. Yeah, it's a strange world because the uh, golfer was just uh, disqualified for the Olympics. Ron, the Spanish golfer who was lost a tournament that he was way ahead about a month ago, and then he's been vaccinated and he tested positive again after after all that. So there are obviously strange things happening. Yeah, I think people are just in a. I think a state of confusion would be fair to say these days. I don't know what's right and wrong hardly half the time. Anyway, well, everything seems to be cherry and rosy uh, when it comes to the economy, Fred. And stock market broke above 35000 for the very first time when I first got into this business. It had just, you know, it had broken 1000 for the first time, you know, just you know, pretty close to the front of my career. And you had to wait a long time for breaking it again. Uh, for sure. Uh, and, you know, but to see in a career the Dow go from 1,000 to 35,000 is, is pretty impressive. It certainly gives you a perspective that I think it's hard to come by, you know, when you're 20 or 25 years old. Yeah. And, I, and I think that's I think that's key. And, and I think it's hard for people to imagine, Ryan, um, when people worry about the next thousand or two or three thousand points, you know, to to think in terms of well, probably in twenty years, it's it's a reasonable assumption that the Dow will probably be in ninety thousand or above. I mean, we don't know, uh, you know. So yeah. I always have to say, don't go out and invest because I just said that. But you know, that's what happened the last twenty years; it tripled, and that's you know, it's it's why that sounds pretty impressive. That's just a little over a five percent compounded return, which is you know, sort of without dividends, sort of kind of in the ballpark of average. Uh, so try to get that perspective. Um, I think right now, you know, what we what we hear when we're at these levels is, well, now is just not a good time to invest because it's just too high. It's too high. And I think, you know, to your point, without kind of a long-term view of the his, of the historical returns and the the index levels that we're at now, you wouldn't you wouldn't have an appreciation for you know how high it is, but it's it's only one of those things. It's like, well, if you're not investing for the short term, just a couple of years, and you're right. you're you're investing presumably for decades, 
you know, it's okay to invest. It's it's the purpose for the money is if you need you need premium returns over maybe inflation just to beat out the the degrading effects of inflation over time, then it's it's still appropriate to invest in stocks because overall we're looking at a longer term picture than months and you know a couple of years at a time. And there's never obviously never certainty. Back in two thousand three the uh state uh borrowed some money and, and gave it to the pension funds. And the uh, person who was in charge of the Bureau of the Budget uh, gave advice to Sirs and said, uh, don't invest it right now. Wait until you know which way the market's going. <laughs> and, uh, well, we, you know what? We kid about that, but these people are serious. Uh, you know, sure. This is actual advice that people many times will listen to. And we ignored the advice and, and basically allocated it the way our overall portfolio was allocated and Obviously, it did a lot better than if we had waited a year or two to find out which way the market was going. Well, think about the period 2000 through 2008. Yeah. You know, the overall total return was minus 28 uh, percent. So not through the full decade, but, you know, through the worst part of it. So for about an eight or nine year period, uh, that's a nine year run where you basically seemingly lost a third of your money, roughly. Uh and the stock market was down four out of nine of those years. Now, by the end of that period, it'd be pretty easy to assume that that's the view of the world and maybe maybe stocks aren't such a good deal. And then you look at basically 2009 through 2021 and, and, and basically 12 of the past 13 years, the stock market's been up. Uh, and we had some years up 25%. Well, the average was about 16% per year for the S&P 500 over that period. Uh, but think about that, 12 out of 13 years right. positive gains. And, and right. we all know that all through that, as Ryan said, well, it's too risky to invest now or the stock prices are too high. I tell the kids, Fred, about when I got in the, the business in the early 80s, I talk about how you know the prior 17 or 18 years, the Dow had gone from 1,000 to 1,000. And that was kind of people's view of the world. And suddenly after a, a sh- couple of years, it's a, Dow 1500 and so up 50% in just a short period of time and yeah. at 1500 I can't tell you how many times I heard I can't invest now because the market's too high at 1500 right the other thing which we mentioned fairly often is the the idea of compounding that uh, uh, you watch uh, antique uh, roadshow and you something went up in value from 1970 to uh, now by threefold or saying that's really fantastic but if you look at you know, five percent return—that's not even right. much at all. And the same thing with housing. Uh, you know, a house sold forty years ago for eighty thousand. Right. Now it's uh, half a million. That's a fantastic increase. Well, it is, but it's not not really very surprising. And uh, if you look at the the rate of return there, so again, compounding kind of sneaks up on you, and you don't really realize the, the impact over a, a long period of time. Yeah, I don't think you should be able to get out of high school or college. Gosh, I'm, I am starting to sound old. Uh, without understanding time value of money and the power of compounding Um, because as I try to tell young folks in their 20s I go these are your most powerful dollars you'll ever invest in fact if you do enough of them for the first 10 years you might you might get away with never (laughs) having to save again it's it's if you invested right but you don't really see it immediately though the the you're you're laying the groundwork but the actual payoff comes you know several decades later and that's and you can't even, when you're 20 or 25, it's hard to even think of your 65-year-old no. self. And next thing you know, you go to sleep and you wake up and you're 60 or 65. <laughs> and at least that's how it seems to me. Well, Fred, according to the National Bureau of Economic Research, 
the last recession, the contraction lasted just two months from February 20th, 20, from February 2020 to the following April. Yeah, it's amazing. Kind of interesting that, that I think they were even trying to figure out if they could call it a recession technically. Yeah, yeah I just looked at uh, the uh, recession in 2007 to 9 was um, um, 18 months. Uh, the one back in the uh, early 1980s was 18 months. So again, this was almost a, a blink of the eye, and, and it sort of changes the uh, the way we think about things. There's no uh, exact formula for, for a recession, but generally we used to say that it's uh, two quarters of decline. Well, this isn't even two, one quarter of decline, right. it's two months of decline. And the way they do it, the National Bureau of Economic Research has a, a committee that date, dates the uh, beginning and end of a recession, and it's really a subjective sort of thing. This obviously is a uh, one-of-a-kind uh, situation, having a recession in uh, two months and having recovery starting uh, almost immediately. And again, we, we say this every time, but uh, we're, we're really in a situation that no one would have dreamed of uh, 18 months ago or so or, or you couldn't have imagined. ago. You couldn't have imagined Right now, uh, we've already surpassed uh, where we were before the uh, COVID, and by the end of this year, we're supposed to be ahead of where we would have been even if we hadn't had the COVID crisis. So again, we lost a lot of in, in the interim, but uh, the recovery has been so swift that it's almost uh, hard to believe. Yeah, I mean, I, I think in the last show I, I talked about how household net worth was at an all-time high, um, and it's it's almost a miracle in the making. But I think sometimes we don't give. A, a pretty free market capitalist economy enough credit for what it can overcome. Yeah. And also, this we have this huge infusion again, which was uh, probably a good idea in the short run. Whether it's a good idea in the long run is uh, yet to be determined. So we have to somehow wean ourselves from the uh, from the stimulus. And you're referring to roughly five trillion dollars of stimulus yeah. uh, when you threw everything in. You know, threw in a couple kitchen sinks. Yeah. And you're probably. I think you're right. I think that kind of emergency situation uh, was probably warranted, whether it should be four or five or six, you know, but so it had to be something probably pretty significant in order to pull out of that kind of decline. Yeah, now, now the question is, uh, it, it may well be a stocking horse for a, a huge increase in all kinds of uh, government interventions, which is probably not, not a good idea. So doing it at the time was really... Uh, uh, probably the right thing at the right time, but also quitting or getting getting off of the stimulus is also an important thing. And it's not clear we're going to do that as cleanly as we probably should. Right. And Brian Westbury just wrote uh, at First Trust Economics. I don't have it in front of me, but I read it this morning. Basically, it's kind of amazing how important technology is in driving this economy now, and that's yeah. part of the miracle. But he's saying, but the government's getting so large, it's you know, it's, that's going to be kind of a takeaway yeah. from that growth yet to be seen how it all plays out but that's kind of like the good yeah. news is we have this technology that's driving productivity that that increases wages and you know incomes yeah. at the same time you know the government i do yeah. think feels emboldened to uh spend and spend and, spend. and it's both sides of the aisle well, not, it's not, not just it's one it's or not the only other. just spend and spend and spend but uh, it appears regulate and regulate regulate but, regulate uh, and get more and more people somewhat dependent on the government well, for part and, of their yeah, the, income stream. The new thing, which is kind of a, a throwback to the old days, is uh, a reinvigoration of uh, antitrust policy. And it's not clear anyone really understands the new economy about, uh, again, uh, no one worries about the monopoly in the iron industry or the 
iron and steel or rubber or automobiles, those are, are totally gone. But now we're worried about the new technology things, and we don't really fully understand either uh, how they operate or how to, how to tax them. So we're talking about antitrust policy in an area that we're really not, uh, not fully uh, uh, sure about which way to go. Yeah, I read an article, I think it was last week, uh, in the Wall Street Journal, How to Be an Anti-Capitalist, and kind of just laid out, here's what the things you would do, and obviously, you know, it had a slant against the Biden administration. Uh, I'll leave that up to others to decide whether, you know, it's sensible or not. Um, but do you, th- do you think that there is it, more hostility towards capital right now uh, than and maybe than it was prior? Yeah, um, a lot more, I think. Uh and the problem is it's coming from both sides. Uh, you have the, uh, the uh, uh, left wing of the, of the Democratic Party obviously being anti-capitalistic, and now you have the, uh, the right wing feeling that they've been uh, mistreated by, by business as well. So th- there was a story in the Wall Street Journal that the, uh, the business has no place to hide now. They, they used to uh, be attacked by the Democrats and protected by the Republicans. Now a good number of Republicans no longer – uh, feel they have any any uh, interest in the in the business sector because they think the business sector actually is hurting people. I, I you know as a person that's pretty much been an entrepreneur his whole career, to me my experience is it's you know it's more burdensome to run a company today than ever, uh, both in terms of cost, actual cost that you have to lay out, and then just the regulatory costs and all the additional things that need to be done now maybe they're appropriate i'm not i'm not saying they are or aren't i'm i'm just saying for sure you know i've had days over the years where you start wondering gosh maybe it'd be better to sign the back of a check than the front of it (laughs) uh but those usually during periods where you're maybe not doing as much business as you would like or things you know maybe the market's down uh, for some period of time but they're obviously you know, people are doing extremely well in the in the private sector. So I think the the thing we've always uh, suggested here is that uh, regardless of the negative things we say about right. the uh, about maybe the impact of the government, the the private sector has a great deal of uh, vitality, and there's no other place to go. They seem to go to work, which is why I always like the theme of ownership of the great companies of America and the world, because I think business is very good at saying, well, we may not like the rules, but now that we know them, we'll get to work on Monday and we'll figure out how to. How to make you know newer products better, cheaper, faster, uh, which is basically the innovation. That's I think that's the story behind the miraculous returns uh, to patient holders of the great companies of America, and, and patients yeah. measured in decades, uh, m- multiple decades, in order to have. Well, you can never be assured you're going to get those returns, but the hope to have those returns, right. if history is any guide, and I think it's the only guide we have. It's probably the only one we need. Um, Janet Yellen. So we're coming up now. <laughs> Seems like this never ends. Um, you know, they're talking about uh, funding the government to keep it going. Yeah. And I guess kind of rattled the cages yesterday or Friday. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen warned Congress, Congress that her department will need to embark on extraordinary measures on August 2nd. So if they can't come to terms, which is always a possibility, yeah. I mean, I can remember the last time. 2011. Uh, yeah, yeah, 2011, where it went so long that we even got a downgrade of the debt. Got people pretty rattled. Another reason not to invest at the time, but. It, it's also, uh, uh, the, the players have, are the same, but they changed sides. The, yeah. 2011, the, the uh, uh, problem was that uh, the, uh, 
no one wanted to raise the ceiling, and uh, it was, and, and again, uh, all that's built in. Uh, the Congress approves all this spending, yeah. and uh, and uh, they they know that when they approve the spending, it's going to increase the debt. So it, it's sort of a, a non-issue, except if they don't do it, then it uh, throws a, a wrench into the whole thing. Just. It's almost predictable, yeah. you know. It's it's inevitability almost that we're going to have this standoff. Uh, probably it's like the boy that crawled wolf, you know. I think people, especially after the last time when they they when the rating agencies actually downgraded yeah. one one uh, point or you know one letter mm-hmm. of the U.S. Treasury, which never happened before. Uh, it was pretty dramatic at the time. Yeah, a lot of people saw that as a reason to get out of the stock market. Yeah. It was much, much lower than it is today. So we'll probably get some of that. Oh, to be an investor these days, guys. It's, <laughs> I mean, it's, there's a lot to digest. Um, and I feel I, like people are always just looking for that one excuse to hang their hat on. Like, see, this is why you don't invest now. Or, th- you know, this is my fear come true. Um, when in reality, it's like, well, for anybody who's still buying stocks and their 401ks, their 403bs, their retirement plans, whatever it might be, those kinds of events, although not necessarily desired, are buying opportunities to acquire more shares of wealth. And the more shares you have at the end of the game, but by the time you're ready to retire, generally the better off you'll be. And if you can acquire those shares at a lower rate, then it only puts the wind at your back. So we almost as a as an investor have to, to trick our minds to say, okay, not not what I had asked for. I didn't ask to see my account balance go down, but because I'm not yet done buying, this is actually something that can help me in the long term. Yeah, and that's for accumulators. I mean, that's, you know, I, I'll talk to, to to people that are still accumulating uh, or even maybe the five or 10 years within retirement and they're reluctant to have a portfolio that's predominantly invested in the great companies of America and the world. And I'll, I'll just say, look, here's the best thing you could have. I hope it doesn't happen because it won't be good for me, but for you, it would be a godsend. If we could see the market decline by 50% over the next five years and stay down there for three or four years while you're still accumulating, I said, trust me, you won't like it, but that's going to pull retirement closer to you, not push it further from you. And it takes a little while for people to really grasp that. A little more difficult, though, isn't it, Ryan, for the newly minted retiree? They got their half a million or million dollar rollover from their 401k plan. Uh, they're going to have some Social Security. They're probably looking at at least two decades in retirement, but for many people nowadays, it's three. Uh, that's, you know, you have to then kind of say, well, we're, they're sort of done accumulating. But suppose they walk in and they're just really fearful. Stock prices are too high. Fill in the blank. Mm-hmm. Um, that's where we've talked about it before, dollar cost averaging comes in. So we can still use that fear for us. In other words, suppose somebody walks in and half of their money we decide should be in stocks at some point and half of it should be in bonds, just to pick a nice easy numbers. And maybe they're very reluctant. Uh, so you say, okay, we'll go in at 20% down payment, right? And then over the next 12 or 18 months or some period of time, we'll put just the same amount in every month until we get to our 50%. And there. Once again, we're setting up a situation that if we get the decline they're fearful of, we'll be accumulating and we can speed it up at much mm-hmm. lower prices. Yep. And I always laugh uh, to myself anyway, when you tell a client, like, one of the greatest things that could happen for you is a 30% off regular right. run-of-the-mill uh, decline right at the front of your retirement. And they look at you like, 
am I in the right place? Right, right. Did I, didn't I just come here hear to that lose right? Money. Yeah. And it's funny, and then you almost let it sink in, and then you explain the the rationale behind it, and it kind of it kind of clears the air. But it's almost like a jolt to the back of the head with a baseball bat. So. Well, you've seen me over the last few years, couple years at least, uh, much more defensive for the newly minted retiree. We're, mm-hmm. we're really playing it slower. It's not a market call either. I have no idea, but it's just this idea that I just talked about how the last 13 years, 12 of them were positive and compounding at 16% of return, which may or may not tell us anything about future returns, but stock prices and returns are somewhat cyclical. Is that fair, Fred? Sure. I think it's a broad, it's a broad I mean, brush. It's cyclical, but, it's but uh, it's a, the cycle not predictable. is not, it's not a regular cycle. Right. right. So it's only so I'm trying to be extra careful for the newly minted retiree saying, look, um, we're going to start out at, you know, the goal may be 30 or 40 percent. And we can always down the road when Social Security kicks in and all that, maybe raise it to a higher permanent plateau of what percent of my portfolios and equities. But because of that, what we call the sequence of returns risk, which is getting bad returns on the front end of retirement at a bad time, uh, kind of get a combination of, of, so it's bad timing and that has an awful lot to do with your outcome. So I, th- I think you need to be really careful in that first five years of retirement. And I, I think you've seen all of us, Ryan, uh, kind of respecting that one event that could really cause a problem is something like a pretty serious depression or a very serious long-term recession, uh, the impact that that might have on stock prices. And so it probably makes sense to pay a little insurance and say, you know, what, we're probably going to be wrong. We'll probably risk we were 50 or 60 or 70% equities from day one. But because that risk is real, it's mm-hmm. small, but real, we have to respect it. Yeah. And I think you're definitely right. You're just, you're paying a little more side to the risk column of, you know, your, your notes. And I think it always comes down to each individual investor, somebody who's got the vast majority, if not all of their retirement funds going to be accumulated through 401k plans or assets. They're going to have to have a lot more respect for that. Whereas someone maybe who's got pensions, uh, maybe even dual pensions from a, a two-earning uh, household, um, and they have a lot more of their money fixed. They have a lot more flexibility should they choose to exercise it. It's just optionality to be able to have higher exposure if they want to, because so much of their income is uh, really, you know, independent of market return. Yeah, I, you know. I, on the other hand, so you're gonna, Fred. I think you think I have a little market timer in me, but. You know, after a very serious decline, a newly minted retiree comes in, I'm much more comfortable saying, well, if they're ultimately going to be 60%, we're just going to take that 60% today. I will make yeah. those judgments. Right. Uh, because the way I see over a lifetime, the, the way I think about stock returns and expected returns is, look, if the stock prices suddenly go down 30 or 35%, to me, that says right now, then at that point, you know, towards that bottom of the decline, my expected return has probably gone up, maybe maybe significantly. Right. And so it brings me a little more comfort, not that the decline is necessarily over, but to be pretty aggressive uh, on the front end of a retirement. I'm, I'm much more comfortable in those. In fact, I, I think in my last newsletter I just sent out last week, I think I brought up the subject of the lifeboat drill. Mm-hmm. So what my clients got in, in the past week was, hey, everything's coming up rosy, but let's start getting emotionally prepared uh, you know, then I'll get some of them say, oh, do you see something coming? But it's not at all. Uh, I never see anything coming, no, but I'm comforted nobody else does either, yeah, right. at least consistently. But it's that 
once or twice a year to try to help that pers- long-term historical perspective and work on the emotional side of the investment uh, process and saying, look, it's, it's well, I guess in all fairness, we had a serious bear market just a year and a half ago, and usually we get a serious type of bear market every four or five years. So it's not making a call, but what I've written in there is it had been something like 404 days since we've had a 10% correction, mm-hmm. and those are usually like a crosstown bus, and 200 and 40 days since even a 5% correction. So that was just my way of getting in front of it saying, let's remind ourselves that stock prices fluctuate wildly. Yeah, They're the very problem unpredictable. With, the problem with a lifeboat drill now is that uh, uh, you have to have a drill that people probably are not familiar with. And that is not, not in the lifeboat for a short time, but in the lifeboat for a long time. Because in the last uh, 20 some years, there hasn't been a long. Uh, a protracted kind of downturn or, or lack of growth as we had in, right. the, in the 70s. So, again, uh, uh, two months is not a very long time, which is why we had this time. And uh, last week we had almost a mini cycle. Uh, on Monday the stock market went down, yeah. the, the largest uh, decline in uh, the year. Since maybe. October. So I, and, that was a year or so. And that was because of the COVID and the stocks like uh, uh, airline stocks and things went down a lot and, and – and, Grocery stores and, and, and toilet stores. paper producers went up, and then the next day it totally reversed itself. So you had basically a one-day uh, mini version of what happened uh, uh, a year ago during the COVID crisis. Hey, so, you, you but talk- but the, point, the point I was trying to make is, though, that it does always turn around in a day or uh, two months or even a couple years. You may have uh, a situation where it lasts for quite a long time, and that's a more challenging situation because most of us uh, can't remember that. For sure, and and I, and let's, and you know, life broke drills don't even help those those yeah. protracted, uh, grinding uh, periods of time that are ten or fifteen years where there's virtually no progress in stock prices except you get some existential uh, terror a terror in between. Uh, you know, I think of the seventies and you had a couple of fifty percent declines thrown in there, and, and the market just churning and churning. Um, left most people on the sidelines by 1982 and believe it or not you the broad market's price to earnings ratio was seven and i think lately it's probably 22 or so on forward uh, earnings or yeah I, I knew people in the late uh 70s who said well, it's not worth it why why even bother to invest because by the time you uh, get your small return they take taxes out of that and you have inflation that far exceeds your return you might as well yeah. might as well spend it and I think that, you know, that, and that mentality was hard to shake. And then that's why this recency bias, and we're always fighting the last war. And so this fighting the last war idea is why I wrote my, you know, because now it, people, people get pretty comfortable when they look at their statements and they're higher and higher, you know, every quarter, uh, seemingly, and uh, suddenly forget the pain of when it's, I don't know about you guys, but here I've been in the business 38 years, and when I look at my overall portfolio on the aggregator during those tough during tough periods of times i refuse to look at it <laughs> I, but i got to tell you i enjoy like anybody else knowing that hey well, i see it's been a pretty good week i wonder what yeah. my portfolio is up to i will pa- partake in that but i i simply refuse to <laughs> acknowledge the pain uh, on those down periods do you, i guess I, do do? I i embrace the pain i actually when it goes down i want to look at how bad it is and then if it starts going up again, I feel better. You know, I've said to a lot of clients that, look, 
this is going to sound strange, but you really want to see quite a bit of unpredictability in stock yeah. prices, uh, or call it fluctuation, call it whatever you want, because that's basically probably the reason we can hope to get compensated by premium returns. Because I think without that premium fluctuation, it doesn't wouldn't be make sense to me that we could expect uh, or be reasonable to expect a premium return, you know, yeah. north of inflation. So. And, and that's why, you know, you get so little return in a bank account or a money market fund is because the, the returns are essentially known and, and more or less guaranteed. So you're not compensated for the potential risk of a decline. So, yeah, absolutely. The, you know, the, the good and the bad of the stock market is, is it shakes enough people out yeah. from time to time that it, it needs to also compensate the people who stay around or want to reinvest to stay there. So, you know, you can't have one without the other. Yeah, it's, you know, and... and it, and even right now, I just think it's a. This is a. I think this is a tough environment for people, particularly investors. Um, and I think they just need to be prepared. So we're always trying to prepare people. Yeah, without, the, the, the one thing uh, we haven't mentioned: uh, there's always rebalancing. So if someone has not done anything for a couple of years, they might want to take a look. Ryan, how many times do you think you've rebalanced your set of clients in the past two years? Uh, so, oh, past two years, yep. a, a lot because COVID, COVID, right. was, we were seemingly rebalancing every one or two weeks with the amount of you know volatility that we were seeing, and then now on the upside of it, it's we're seeing it you know not as frequently but still very common where we're having to rebalance two maybe two times uh, in a year uh, because things just keep growing and it's as you said earlier it's been growing on the positive uh, direction without seeing much of the down, um, so it's just been portfolios have been progressively getting more and more stock heavy and as and as a result of having clients under model portfolios where we define in advance why people are investing and the allocation for example is going to be set at 60 percent stocks 40 percent bonds as you get more and more 62 65 67 percent accumulation in stocks then you need to pair it back to get it back in tune with your model and i've seen it you know a couple times over just recently with some clients so i was like oh my gosh i thought i just rebalanced them and here we are looking at like on the precipice of doing it again. And you can go quite a while sometimes without doing much Absolutely. rebalancing at all. But stock returns are lumpy. Yep. Uh, one of the things I hear, and I don't, you, you can chime in, Ryan, and Fred, this probably makes sense to you intuitively, is w- the reason I get a little more just concerned about, I, I, I always get kind of this feeling what I'm hearing from investors and clients. And when I get question after question about why do we have so much in bonds. So you take somebody's uh, maybe 60 or 70% in stock, suddenly they're wondering why they have 40, 30% in bonds that are not paying a lot of return. Um, Getting more pushback from, or or like more questions of, well, why so much in bonds? Mm -hmm. Whereas, you know, I'll go through some period of saying, why do we have so much in stocks? And I kind of have this internal saying to myself is when when i get a number of people asking me why we have so much in bonds we're probably about to find out why yeah. now, and i don't know that that's yeah. going to hold true but it's sort of held has held true uh over my career yeah but it's, it's really psychological or, or behavioral kind of things because i always think uh, uh where would i be if i hadn't uh, yeah. put money in bonds now and then if the market goes down i said where would i have been if i had uh blowing the whistle and put a lot more in bonds when the market was up. So it's kind of a game you can't win because you always uh, kind of think about what if and always what if is uh, 
not possible. And then I've had situations where I'll have a client ask on one given day, why do we have so much in stocks? And then a year and a half later, writing me sure. emails about how can we have so much in bonds? You yeah. know, because yeah. obviously things have changed, um, which gives you a real insight because I think a lot of us could write that email. Well, I think right. also, uh, I guess when I first started investing, uh, I obviously didn't know very much and always thought, uh, why are the uh, managers so dumb? Uh, they're supposed to uh, put money in when the market's going up and take it out when it's going down. And the fact is, they're not dumb. They're, it's just an impossible game to win. So you can't expect your advisor or anyone else to to make the right call about when to go in and when to come out, which is the idea that uh, market timing doesn't work. Well, right. and But yet it's still sold is well, you know, we may not make as much money in the bull markets, but where we come in, you know, this says the yeah. market timer, is we really save you a lot of turmoil in the yeah. down markets. But then again, the, the facts are stubborn things. Yeah. And when you look at f- probably 60 years of data now, it shows that I wouldn't count on that at all of, yeah. uh, if market timing is their bag. And that's, their perf- you know, if that's yeah. why. They're and and what we talk about, uh, passive investment doesn't protect you against market timing. Right. Uh, if you... You can still be a, a market timer with uh, passive funds sure. and do a lot of damage to yourself. Ryan, I noticed that, because I'm getting emails from David, that we're, we're shifting quite a bit from mutual funds, exchange-traded funds. Mm-hmm. And I'm kind of getting this feeling if we're doing that, it's probably some type of big trend out there. Can you kind of explain what might be going on? Why I'm starting to think there may not even be traditional mutual funds or there'll be a much smaller share of the marketplace and much more in exchange-traded funds. Yeah. What's, what's going on? I know we use dimensional fund advisors' funds, obviously. been using them since 1990. Um, but I'm seeing that push, and it seems like they're accelerating that. What's kind of going on behind that? Um, I think the the shift is just kind of the natural evolution of the investing world. Before it was just owning an individual share of a stock or an individual bond, then that you know evolved to owning a basket of stocks and bonds. It was more efficient to do so in a mutual fund. You could own hundreds or thousands of stocks for a, a fractional price of a share, uh, and it made it more accessible to just the investing public. Now we're kind of potentially on this new leap going from mutual funds to ETFs or exchange-traded funds. And I think that's really just a reflection of just the current uh, climate. And the climate is this. A lot of the, the brokerage houses charge a fee for trading, buying, or selling a mutual fund on their platform. Maybe it's $5, $20, $40. It depends on your, your brokerage firm. Um, and now they've essentially made this race to the bottom where they say individual stocks and exchange-traded funds, ETFs, trade for free. So if you can if you can be a fund company like we use Dimensional and, and countless others, you say, well, there's a potential advantage to having an ETF in this current climate, um, and I can essentially you know duplicate or replicate the fund underlying funds within a mutual fund into an ETF and save clients a ticket charge every time they trade. Well, that's certainly an advantage and maybe a reason for certain people to to self-select towards an ETF. Um, there are also significant advantages if you're investing in a taxable brokerage account rather than an IRA uh, because of the way that uh, ETFs are managed or they have permissible rules. You don't have to necessarily buy and sell and realize gains within an ETF. You can do what's called an in-kind exchange with inside the ETF without realizing taxes. And I'm not trying to get too technical, but I feel like I am. 
Well, um, you're saying that there, there are some tax efficiency issues that go along with, the, with some advantages to the exchange-traded fund. Within a brokerage, a taxable account, precisely. And that's a, a significant advantage, yeah. too, just to potentially minimize your taxable events in a year by now, owning ETFs. I guess I'm still uh, not, uh, not weaned from uh, mutual funds. But uh, the one thing I think which is there's been a subtle change back – Five or ten years ago, with uh, exchange-traded funds, it was almost synonymous with passive investment. Mm-hmm. And over the years, though, the ex- exchange, as as we always talk about, brokers will sell you anything that you'll, that people will buy. So there's been a, a movement for exchange-traded funds to be much less uh, broad-based and and, and in sure. a sense less less passive. So uh, you could buy an EFT, I think, now in uh, in Bitcoin probably if you – Yeah, I uh, think pretty uh, much everything. You know, stocks so, so stocks that begin with B, there's probably an exchange-traded fund. <laughs> so the, the point is uh, you may lose that idea of a broad-based kind of passive investment if you start choosing uh, this EFT versus that EFT and so on. So that, that's something if you understand it's not a problem, but if you – don't understand it, it may be a problem. Right. The, one of the first ones out of the gate was the SPY, uh-huh. Sam Paul Yankee, which was basically the Standard Poor's 500 index. Right. It was just a pure index play, very inexpensive to own. And so at first, we kind of they were kind of synonymous with kind of like, oh, they're just like an index fund. But now they're just like a mutual fund. In other yeah. words, just if you look at the mutual fund industry, there's a flavor for everything. There's probably 15 or 20,000 mutual funds out there. Uh, and and so, yeah, anymore to think of exchange-traded funds is then, you know, it's now I just look at it, it's just another envelope to hold stuff. Mm-hmm. And right. there are some, some advantages. So you, you could find an um, exchange-traded fund, which is like a, a passive fund. For but, sure. But you have to make sure you, you know what you want. And, and Dr. Gertz, you bring up a really uh, topical point. So most of those ETFs up until about a year and a half ago were – really just a full passive ETF, meaning that if you're in an index of like the S&P 500 index, the SPY ETF, as that index reconstitutes and some companies are kicked out of the index, new ones are brought in, then that ETF immediately had to rebalance just like the index. So it was very forced, regimented. Now the SEC has made new allowances to say, you don't have to have that same rigidity. And so now these individual fund companies can say, okay, I want to track or or try to follow the S&P 500 without the same force schedule of having to reconstitute at the same drop-dead date as everyone else does, which means trading costs go up because everyone's buying and selling at the same time. Now, with this ability to have about a more patient, flexible schedule, you can actually reduce your costs to your investors because you're not all buying and selling at the same time. Yeah. You can choose to then reconstitute over a longer period of time uh, rather than all at once, and then br- bring home a little bit of extra return for your investors who own that kind of a yeah. style ETF. The other issue, which shouldn't be a concern to anyone, is interday trading. Right. Uh, sure. You can inter- trade during the day with an EFT, but the problem is the time you may want to do it, if there's some kind of wild swing, uh, right. you may not be able to do it because EFTs don't don't guarantee that you can buy and sell any, any particular time at any particular price. Uh, right. Particularly, there's some of them that are so small and they're thinly traded stocks. Uh, that's for sure. You go into the standard ports 500, you know, like yeah. the SPY, probably going to be plenty of liquidity at any given moment. Uh, but you have to be careful. But, you know, the fact that I think one of those things, the fact that you can trade them doesn't mean you should. Yeah. Because, again, our view of the world is you buy stuff that you're going to hold for a but long time. But it also means that you may, even if you, 
if you think you can trade them, you may not be able to trade them. Certain, for sure. Certain times. Yeah, for sure. So, guys, uh, maybe this will be the last topic. Um, the biggest, if someone said, Paul, what's the biggest misnomer you hear frequently uh, in finance? It's this $15,000, how much I can give people. Um, I would say that probably 90% of my clients at any given time, they think when well, we're talking about giving children money, they'll say, well, but I, I can't give them more than 15000 And And then when you tell them, oh, sure you can. You know, you just, if you do, there might be some reporting involved, but probably no taxation involved. Um, can you explain, Ryan, kind of like what the deal is with sure. gifting and what's allowed and what's, you know, what, what triggers a filing of a particular tax form, et cetera? So any person can give $15,000 to anyone they like. So I think one sub-misnomer is they think it's got to be a family member, for example, or someone related. Um, but it's not. You could, I could walk down the street over here on, on Neil and give $15,000 out to every person I see. I'd go broke real fast, uh, <laughs> probably by the time I get to uh, a restaurant like Green Jade or something else. <laughs> but, um, you know, the, the funny thing is, is like, well, no, you can, you can give as much away as you want, up to $15,000 per person per year. If you're married, you can use the, just the duplicate of that. You can each, as a married couple, you can give 15000 for a total of 30000 to any person per year without having to file any type of tax form. So it's as if the event never happened. There's no taxable event. Where the I guess the important point comes in is anything above that thirty thousand for a joint couple or fifteen thousand for an individual, that's when you just have to track it. And there's just a IRS form, I think it's form seven oh nine, uh, that requires you just to note that money above that fifteen thousand was given and you just have to file it, I think, annually as you do your taxes. And the exemptions are big though. The you know, the lifetime exemptions are huge. I mean very few people that I know. I know some that <laughs> way beyond it, but most of my clients, for example, uh, are probably under that yeah. target. Can you talk yeah. a little bit about those? Yeah, so the target is, is enormous, as you point out. For each person, you can give $11.7 million, and that's 2021's dollars. Uh, it's indexed for inflation each year, so that number always goes up until there's a potential change in the regulation. Uh, so a, a joint household can give away $23.4 million tax-free. So I think when everyone thinks, oh, my gosh, I've given over 30000 or over 15000 I'm going to pay tax. No, it's, it's just merely coming out of that, that lifetime amount that you can give. So it's subtracting from that number. And then when you eclipse it or go over it, that's when there would be any taxable yeah. event. Also, it's a, it's a complicated area, but uh, we have something called an integrated mm -hmm. uh, estate and gift tax. So you're, the, the uh, taxable gifts, potentially taxable gifts, even though they're not taxed, they count against the base and they use up part of your estate tax um, um, exemption or, or exclusion. Yep. So it's a very complicated kind of thing, but the point you're making is it's so big that that doesn't make much difference for most people. For, for most people, The precisely. other thing, too, to, say you have a, a, a husband and wife who have two children who both have spouses who both have two children. Uh, I've done a calculation here. It looks like you have 16 gifts of $15,000 a year. So you give $240,000 a year away and not even trigger the uh, the gift tax situation. Yep. You're always below. So it could be it's per person and you have a, a spouse and you have in children, you may have a, a child and a spouse and grandchildren. So right. it, it gets big pretty fast. 
Yep, for sure. It, it's unbelievable. So, you know, if that's something that you have the the interest in doing, know the capacity is there to give away a lot. Um, and, you know, there are some potential changes headed at us in the next, you know, four years or so. But the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act raised the ceiling to this, you know, roughly 11 or $20 million number that might be getting changed yeah. back in about And, and no, no implication for the recipient either. Okay. Uh, we do have Peter on the line. I think Peter has a question about a newly minted retirement portfolio. Yeah, uh, first a question, then a comment. Um, I'm just wondering, for a current retiree, what proportion of one's portfolio do you recommend putting in either an immediate income or deferred income annuity? Okay, well, that depends. Uh, good question, because they, and, and, and what Peter's talking about is you can take a block, a sum of money, trade $100,000 for a lifetime income of some amount. And of course, these days, it's a little bit lower than it used to be because interest rates are so low, but that's not the question. The question is how much. What we always do, Peter, is we put several scenarios together. One of them is a world with no lifetime income that's guaranteed for your life, and then one that has significant or a portion of it uh, in these immediate annuities, this income for life. And I think it's our goal to not make that decision for clients. It's allow you know, give them the information that they, uh, you know, so that they can make that decision. Yeah. Um, because frankly, we have to be upfront with them and say, "Look, if you put money in an immediate annuity, we're prob we're not going to make as much money." And so I just diffuse that right up front. And say, "Look, you know, the more you put with us, the more I'm going to make, and you just need to know that. But it's not going to tarnish my advice because I'm not going to tell you what to do. I'm going to give you a basis for that decision." Having said that. Very few people, in my experience, when they see uh, the, the one scenario with substantial lifetime income versus the other, well, very few of them choose the lifetime income side. Now, there's reasons that some of them do. I had one. I had a retired Carl physician. Uh, most of them, they, had, they were in a situation where they had to take a lump sum of money or a lifetime pension. And for most of the people, they chose the lump sum for a variety of reasons. I had one, though, that I said, you know what, in your situation, you have enough outside, you know, in stock investments, I think it would be quite appropriate for you to do that and just show them side by side and I might push them a little bit. So uh, there's a big, the academics think it should be a significant portion of it. I can't get to a point where I think they're competitive enough with a reasonable conservative balanced portfolio for most people. Yeah. I'm the academic that uh, I, I agree with the immediate annuity. I think that there's real value with a deferred annuity. If you're worried about running out of money and you have to figure out, can I make it or can I not, uh, buy a deferred annuity for when you reach 80 years old right. and spend up to that point and know that if, if you live a long time and spend all your money, you still have that uh, coming in. Uh, so, again, we've been talking about this. It's always uh, it's going to be a good idea, but the time isn't quite here. Yeah, what you, I was going to say, Fred, I, I love the concept of a, a deferred annuity. I just don't like the pricing. I don't think they're priced well enough to where it makes sense to me. Right. Okay. It's just not, it's to me. I put them side by side. They're just too, they're just too expensive. I expect that to close, and I expect that that deferred lifetime annuities are going to be a significant portion of financial planning in the future. I just don't think 
their price properly yet to where I can get too yeah. excited but, about them. But the, the, well, mis- the misunderstanding, let me just say one thing. The misunderstanding, though, is, well, I might not live that long and I'd lose it. Well, that's the idea of an annuity. Insurance. If you're worried about not getting it, uh, that's kind of a, a separate issue, which does, doesn't make a lot of sense. But I'm sorry. Go ahead, Peter. Yeah, well, I, I don't have Social Security. I do have a pension from the U of I. But of course, you know, we've got the, one of the worst funded pension systems in the country. Um, I've, I've read, uh, uh, some people suggest maybe 15% of your portfolio in, in one of these annuities. Sure. Does that sound reasonable, so, it, but no, no more than that? Would, I don't think there's that? a one-size-fits-all. I'm just saying there's a degree of reasonableness. I think what you want, Peter, is to put them side-by-side a variety of scenarios and find the one that is going to allow you to live in retirement in peace the best. If you have a substantial part of your income that gets a 3% guaranteed return uh, increase every year, it might be quite fitting for you to consider even a little bit more of a, of a lifetime annuity. And you can also annuitize inside uh, 403B or 401k. Sure. It's kind of complicated, but uh, uh, that's a possibility as well. Yeah. Okay. Well, I appreciate that. And then one comment. Um, I, I do enjoy your columns in uh, Sunday's Gazette. Uh, the article about giving 15000 a year, is that all you can give? I, I think you might have added, uh, it's my understanding you can give any person uh, and pay for an unlimited amount for uh, educational bills and medical bills as long as you pay the educational directly. institution or or, uh, or health care provider directly. Uh, I think that would be something you might have... Uh, Probably should have added that. Yep, I yeah, agree. Yeah. I, w- I was actually in our conversation, I was going to mention a couple little caveats to that. So <laughs> thanks, okay. Peter. Appreciate your uh, <laughs> calling it. Thanks. Okay, thank you. Well, yeah, yeah it's one of the things that you could discuss that. And then, of course, there's the kind of the forward giving even in a 529 plan that, you know, we're limited to about 450 words for <laughs> exactly. each column. So. Sometimes we have to try to hit the big numbers. That's really probably what's going on there. Yeah, I was going to say the same thing to Peter. Is that we we know all these things that we could we could branch off of in these topics, and we say, oh my gosh, we have to be able to at least hit one target head on. And so you know, those are great comments he brings up. As long as you pay the hospital directly, you pay a school directly for like college education, tuition, it's tuition. Yep, yep it, it's acceptable to to give that money. It's not considered a gift. It's given its own exclusion where. You can assist somebody. And then in a 529 plan, you can basically front load five years of gifting uh, without any reporting. Right. So, you know, but there's little caveats to all these things. So exactly. this is not, you know, again, we had 450 words and we have an hour here. Uh, we have a minute here, but <laughs> as it turns out. Uh, but I appreciate the concept, and I'm glad you did. That's one of the things I was going to bring up today yep. uh, as well. Uh, Fred, well, seems like everything's coming up rosy, but nobody's happy. Right. I mean, that's, uh, you know, everybody's worried about us being socialized, more and more social. You know, I'll get clients that are very concerned about it. Yeah. I say, well, Europe is many chapters ahead of us on the socialism thing. Right. It's still a large number of people can still live a quite a nice retirement. But the people that worry about it most are the people who are retired and they have the least to worry about it because they've already accumulated. It's, uh, if there is a problem, it's going to be for, for younger people dealing with the system. I yeah. think I think right. it's always fair too to look at wherever you are in life and you say, well, things just aren't as good as they used to be. It's that fault, you know, that fallacy that things were somehow better in the past. Well, there's always challenges. Always will be. I mean, I, it seems like, uh, but I am. I think people are convinced. A lot of people are convinced that things are changing more rapidly at an increasing rate, and maybe 
But that's we're out of time today, guys. So, uh, Dr. Fred Gertz, thanks. Ryan Repko, thanks for uh, being with us. We're not going to be here for the next show, the August 10th show, but we'll be there the fourth Tuesday of August. We'll be right back on schedule. Thanks for listening. Have a good day. Join us for the second and fourth Tuesday of each month for Paul Rudy's On the Money. Views expressed represent those of the guests and do not necessarily represent those of the station. This is News Talk 1400, WDWS, Champaign-Urbana.